0: born there has a lot to do with it for a lot of different people and a lot of different authors. I think a lot of Appalachian authors sort of feel like, you know, they're trying to keep a tradition alive.
1: Appalachia Meets World, a podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachia. Appalachia Meets World, it's Will and Neil are back. Yes, sir. Back in action. Another week. Lots of fun stuff going on. The football cats finally had to take an L. Uh, Hated to see it, but you know, tough team. They made us proud. Kind of sort. I was glad they scored there at the end. I don't know what coaching theories are on behind that, but if you're on the field, play exactly. I heard Georgia's coach say he had no problem with it. He's a grown man. The only person that did have a problem with it was the media and some Georgia fans. They always do. The media always has a problem with something, right? Are we the media? Are, are we? I don't like to think so. I mean, that's a valid question, though, right? I guess, I guess so. Uh, <laughs> I mean, this is a form of media. <laughs> we might need to start going to some symposiums or something. <laughs> <laughs> is that what you do? Is that what people do? I, I don't know. Line them up. Maybe we can get on the sidelines. You think if we send in media credentials to the next uh, Kentucky football game, they'll grant it to us? <laughs> you know I'm going to do that, right? Y'all see me on the sideline. You know I'm just recording an episode. <laughs> where, where are you from? Down here in the 606, man, still thriving. I heard uh, I was joking around with some people today, actually, and they they said, uh, are you from Kiwi? You, you, you from Kiwi? Did you go to Kiwi Elementary? I said, no, nah, man. I went to Cold Hill. And then somebody standing right beside me said, ah, he's from Bell County. He's from Rommel. I said, that's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so everybody, everybody knows where I bleed. That's right. Maroon and gold. Ice water in my veins. Maroon, gold, red, black. All blue. The above. All the above. So what about you, man? What's shaking up in the Northeast? Oh. I think I want to ask you a pop culture question. Oh, my God. You know I'm right on in line with all that pop culture. Have you seen Squid Game? Uh, Come again? Squid Game? I have no idea what you're talking about. I I had no desire to watch this show. Apparently, it's the number one watched Netflix show of all time. No way. And it is so weird (laughs) and gruesome. And, I, I mean, I've only watched one episode. I may not watch it beyond that, but apparently people love it. Is it real? No, it's just a movie. Okay. Well, well, it's a series. Yeah, but it. Okay, it's it's fictional. Fictional. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I'd hope so. <laughs> I don't know. I have no considering idea. The plot, considering the plot line. I know the listeners know if you don't. Well, I'm looking at it right now. It looks pretty twisted. Twisted's a good word. I've only watched one episode, so I'll keep you updated if I actually do watch another one, but uh, it's not likely. So it appears to me that Squid Game, Is one of those deals that a writer gets in their head somewhere and wants to tell fictional stories about. You have to be a special person to be able to do that. You have to have a creative mind, for sure. You do. You know, I always had an imagination as a kid, and I still do to some degree. Well, yeah, what do you imaginate about? Is that a word? Imaginate? Imaginate. It is in Appalachia. I think it's in the dictionary. dictionary. We'll have to to get Jennifer back on here and ask her. Yeah, just to qualify that word. imagine. So what do you imagine? Imagine. I used to imagine that I was in big games because I could never get anybody to come out in the yard and play with me. So <laughs> I had to imagine that I was playing in a big game because my brother wouldn't come outside and play. So yeah. used to do that. But after I reached a certain age, it just kind of stopped. And I just wonder if. Do writers imagine forever? I think creative people do, Neil. <laughs> yeah, I'm not creative. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think obviously from your no own from your own imagination of playing in big games, I'm guessing you're not you don't you're you're what is it right side left side brain? <laughs> you don't have that creative. <laughs> no way, I don't. It's okay. I'm I'm comfortable with it. But I was just thinking, I like to write sometimes. And I sit down and I write a couple pages, and then I'm like, okay, I'm done for six months. Uh, Well, what do you write? Like, like a journal? Sweet, sweet diaries, (laughs) or uh, love letters, or uh, (laughs) to yourself. (laughs) Love letters to yourself? (laughs) No. you know, like you journal, you yeah, know, I, journal, I, I, do yeah. some, I do some journaling from time to time. And I'll, yes. that's always, I always like to go back and see like when the last time I journaled was because I'll go like months in between. Do you journal on your phone or do you actually do, pe- pen, I actually and do pen and paper? Oh. I can't do the the phone deal. I, I have to write it. Yeah, I, I know some read. people pull out their phone and do the notes. You know what I do with my phone in the notes? No. I keep notes <laughs> like short Limited notes or like a grocery list or, you know, yeah, it makes sense. I'm not journaling in my phone. Seriously. <laughs> who does that? with? Who journals with their thumbs? I'm sure there are plenty of millennials that journal with their thumbs. <laughs> yeah, I guarantee it. This is a but thumb anyway. generation. That's what this generation is. It's the thumb generation. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, I was just thinking, like, I'll journal, and then I'm like, I'm tired after a page or two. I'm like, can you imagine writing a book? It's it's hard, man. Not anybody can do it. It's hard. You say that like you've done it. No, I, I'm saying if it was easy, everyone would do it. Right. It's work. Oh, yeah. For creative, imaginative people. Speaking of creative, we have one on tonight, an Appalachian creative. Mike. Would he be okay with us calling him creative? <laughs> well, you can try. <laughs> I'll ask him. We have Mike Crowley on uh, the show, who is an Appalachian author uh, not too long ago, published his first book of short stories called Any Other Place. He's a good friend and has a unique perspective on Appalachia, which is why we wanted to have him on the show. Yeah. it's Been a while since I've uh, had a chance to talk to Crowley. I know uh, you talk to him a little more often than I do, but... Uh, just another personal relationship that we have. And he would probably be a little thrown off if we're telling him how successful he's been. But, (laughs) you know, pretty pretty prestigious awards that he's won the last little bit. So I'm pretty proud of him. Yeah, let's uh, get him on here, ask him some questions and hear from his, uh, like I said, unique perspective. Sounds good. We'll have to pull him away from some kind of game, I'm sure. Yeah, I heard uh, a big fan of the Braves so chop on let's do it (laughs) all right we have tonight Michael Crowley author and professor at Denison University his first book any other place is a collection of short stories which is the winner of the James Still Award and the Weatherford Award also, he's a co-editor of Midland Reports from Flower Country. He also has reports, stories, and essays in the New York Times, Bloomberg, VQR, Paris Review, the Kenyon Review, Lit Hub, Narrative, among others, and has won several grants and awards like the National Endowment of the Arts, the Ohio and Kentucky Arts Council, and the Swanee's Rider Conference. Michael, can I call you Mike? Can I call you Crowley?
0: <laughs> just call me Crowley, Will.
1: <laughs> hey, hey. Uh, Thanks so just, much I, for being just, on the show. I just want to add real quick. I don't know what any of that stuff means, Crowley, but uh, <laughs> I appreciate you taking the time out to talk to us. So,
0: <laughs> sure, sure, guys. Happy, happy to do it. Good to see you guys again. So, so,
1: so before we get started, we'll treat you like all of our other guests and, and ask you my favorite question when we start <laughs> our podcast. You know, we grew up in Appalachia. For us, it's it family tradition. One of the family traditions that we have is to uh, everybody at Christmas time or during the holidays, everybody brings an appetizer. So we usually have more appetizers than we do have real food. <laughs> but so we always ask our guests, just kind of as a you know, opening question, what's your favorite appetizer holiday tradition?
0: So when I got married, my wife, Mary, she likes to do I don't know about you guys. We used to eat dinner like, I always feel like we did Thanksgiving like at 1230. I don't know why. Everybody got up like at six and started cooking. Start cooking. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. so then like when I got married, Mary actually does dinner. It's like it's like a six o'clock meal. So you got all day just to like, I don't know, it's kind of weird to me. They eat but, appetizers. Uh, yeah. So Mary does a whole thing, man. She But she does a lot of like fancy stuff. She'll do like charcuterie and cheeses and crackers and all that stuff. But really, the thing that we only, the only thing that we both of us really like is she also just gets like pizza rolls. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we make like a bag of pizza rolls. You're
1: talking about like store bought pizza rolls? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh straight to appalachian. Yeah,
0: yeah. So we just do pizza rolls and then we've got like all this like fancy like salami and stuff. We just got pizza rolls and then um uh, hell of a good and uh and wavy lace. <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: but, so funny you talked about Thanksgiving being at like twelve o'clock noon. I, I can remember for years and years our mom would serve Thanksgiving dinner at the same time, like twelve thirty, one o'clock. It makes no sense. We finally got her to back it up. It's usually about three or four now, but still not doing it. <laughs> That's funny. But anyway, moving on. Thanks for indulging me. Yeah, man. Yeah, Crow. Uh, I, I am going to call you Crowley. For the listeners <laughs> that don't know, we, we know each other pretty well. We definitely wanted to have you on the show to show that creative side of Appalachia. You know, you're doing some some great things. You grew up in the same near the same hometown. We, we won't hold anything and get you being from Corbin. Uh, sure. It's near from Where we grew up, too. Where's that at, Will? (laughs) Corbin? (laughs) Where's it Nibrock? I don't
0: know. Well, it's hard to compete against the world's largest frying pan. (laughs) (laughs) That's right.
1: (laughs) One question I did want to ask you, Crowley, just in regards to this idea of being an Appalachian author, you know, what makes a person an Appalachian author? Do you have to be from Appalachian? I know there are some people that are are considered Appalachian authors that didn't necessarily grow up in Appalachia. Uh, what makes you an Appalachian author?
0: Well, I think being born there has a lot to do with it for a lot of different people and a lot of different authors. I think a lot of Appalachian authors sort of feel like, you know, they're trying to keep a tradition alive, you know, traditions that, you know, guys like us didn't grow up with, like, and I'm not trying to be funny, like butchering hogs and, and you know, hunting the echinacea in the woods and stuff. Like, you know, I mean, I think stuff like that, for people that grew up in a certain way with certain family traditions, going back to Neil's earlier point, you know, that's a way of life that seems really far removed from our 21st century experience, but in some ways actually isn't that far removed. It's only a generation previous in some ways, you know? So there are riders, you know, riders probably a generation older than me, you know, they're really concerned with losing those kinds of traditions, traditions and people not understanding that a lot of those things make Appalachia uh, really unique entity in the south. I don't think people always understand like what a stepsister Appalachia is in the south. Our accents are not like the accents in Georgia or Alabama or Mississippi. Most of Appalachia, not exclusively, but most of Appalachia was uh, was not comprised of plantations and slave owners. And so that that also makes Appalachian an interesting part of the South in that way, and that we weren't part of a lot of the, um, I don't I'm trying to think of the best way to say this. We weren't part of a lot of the structural economic racism that sort of formulated, you know, the South and the country writ large. And also the mountains were so isolating in some ways that they had their own sort of inherent culture and tradition that sort of was born from that because there wasn't a lot of exchange of people and goods in the area. So Appalachian authors sort of carry that tradition, carry that tradition of sort of being isolated. I always think of Appalachians as really territorial.
1: Yeah.
0: And I think that has a lot to do with it. And, and all Southern authors, but particularly Appalachian authors, are really interested in place. And I mean, it's something I write a lot about, which is just that I'm interested in the ways places shape us, the ways that they sort of form who we are, and the ways like even when we leave, they still continue to shape our worldview. Sometimes they haunt our worldview. Sometimes we react against what we grew up against, which is not really so much an Appalachian thing. I think that's a very American idea. I think when you grow up where we grew up, you just kind of go through the world feeling a little bit like an alien. There are just sort of certain social constructs at home that don't
1: really pertain to any other place that I've ever been. I've lived in a lot of different places. And by that, by, by feeling like an alien, you mean when you leave the region, right? when you're there yeah. you, don't, you don't understand yeah. it fully until you leave
0: yeah you don't really know i mean i don't think a lot of people and i would i would say even now even with we were flooded with the internet and TikTok and snapchat and all this stuff like i don't think you really understand how different it is where where we were from until you're out in the world i mean it's i mean there are things now even that that still surprise me about the way that we grew up you know and i'm 44 years old and i'm like other people didn't do that, like right. You know, well, I mean, let me ask you this.
1: You know, you you t- you teach your your professor at Denison University. I don't know if I mentioned that in the beginning. You have lived in Granville. You have lived right in Appalachia and the outskirts of Appalachia. And we we had a conversation about this with our last guest. You know, you mentioned Southern Appalachia. You mentioned the accents are always different. Do you feel like a- Appalachia is unified Appalachia? Do you feel like where you live right now? Uh, right on the outskirts of Appalachia, that it's how you grew up? Um, you feel like it's different uh, where you live? No.
0: I mean, while I'm in Columbus now, I mean, so I don't – Columbus is pretty – Columbus is like one of the fastest-growing cities in the Midwest. So it's, right. it's a lot different. I think even if you went down to like OU and in Athens, it's different. I think there's lots of different Appalachias. And that's one thing. I'm actually supposed to edit a book for the University of Kentucky Press about uh, being Asian American in Appalachia, too. But they're doing a whole series there. They're doing they're doing a series about Native Americans in Appalachia, then a series about, you know, LBGTQ plus in Appalachia. They're doing a series about African-Americans in Appalachia. There's a great podcast. There's a great podcast called Black in Appalachia. You know, I mean, there are all these different cultures and different streams within Appalachia that, you know, I didn't really understand growing up. I mean, but I grew up in Corbin, which was pretty homogenous, right? I mean, you guys grew up in London, which was less homogenous than Corbin, but I would not Pineville. say... It was, or, <laughs> you grew up in Powell before you moved to London, but <laughs> you know, both places I would not say were super diverse, right, in the ways that we think of diversity now. I also think in those areas, it wasn't uh, a ton of economic diversity either. You know, there was a lot, of, like, a lot of class diversity. I think, you know, my memories of growing up is that, you know, there were people that were well off and there were people that weren't. It wasn't a lot of that in-between zone. You know, I wouldn't really even call it a middle class. So I think you grow up in these sort of homogenous places and you forget that there's other people doing other things in Appalachia. And I think that's another thing about just growing up and getting older and looking at the region from afar, you know, from that thousand foot perspective, instead of being in it, you can start to see those things a little bit more clearly.
1: I, I want to get into your excellent collection of short stories, any other place. But, you know, you mentioned you write about place, you write about home quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I've read a lot of your essays. Some of those are really personal. Is it harder to write essays than to write fiction? I know some of your fiction, well, I know some of your fiction's autobiographical. Sure, yeah, yeah. Sure. But people know you're writing about yourself when you write your essays. Is it harder to write essays?
0: Uh, there's a different kind of vulnerability. You know, to writing an essay. I was they're all hard. I mean, there's none of it's easy. I mean, I think that's the first thing. I think people think writing is like this romantic pursuit and it's really just hard work, you know. Like I always tell people I wasn't the most talented person in my graduate school class. I was just the one that could take pain the most. Which honestly, I mean, I do think comes from playing sports growing up, you know. Like I tell my students this all the time. Like being a writer for me is just throwing my head against the wall 80 times a day. And I was like, the wall always wins, you know, but every once in a while I dent the wall. You know, and it feels pretty good when that happens. <laughs> so they're both hard. Essays are essays are easier in the sense that I don't have to figure out what comes next. I know what right. I know what happens next. A story's different in the sense that you know you're trying to use a lie to tell tell a truth, which is usually an emotional truth, and you're trying to think through you're trying to think through a series of events <clears throat> that will um you know best illuminate that. So I mean, a good example of this was if you want to indulge me is. There's this incident that happened at the North Korean, South Korean border, the DMZ, 1976. I don't know all the details on this, so somebody can fact check. Me. But it's called the axe murder incident. Basic idea was, was that the North Korean soldiers and the South Korean soldiers were going to do this like this kind of show of unity. They were going to cut this tree down. And so something goes sideways. I forget who attacks who. Someone takes one of these axes and like kills a couple soldiers, a couple of South Korean soldiers. Well, it turns out my uncle was stationed there and I didn't know about this till like oh, four or five years ago. My mom mentioned it. And um, so I want to write a story about it. But, you know, I was telling my students about this as a way to teach them like this, is how you write fiction, which is like he was fine and he wasn't there. But they didn't know. Like they had no they knew he was stationed the DMZ, but they did. And this was like big. Anytime something happens between the two Koreas, it's huge news in the countries because they're always worried about the north invading the south. So my mom's family didn't know what was going on with my uncle. So I want to write this story about it. Well, the story's not any good if like it turns out he was fine and he was like asleep in his bunk, right? (laughs) The story's only good if the character who I'm basing off my uncle, it's only good if what? He's there at the incident. If he's wielding an axe or he gets hit by the axe. So the essay version of that would be a lot different. The essay version would have like less action, less drama, but it would require more thought, more meditation. It would require me to be more interesting on the page about how I'm thinking about it and how I'm thinking about what that says about family or war or, you know, right. whatever I decide to talk about.
1: I also know you write, like I said, you write a lot about home and place. You also write a lot about your mom. You know, your mom is from from Korea. Your dad is from America. You have a good quote in one of your essays where your mom says, I'll never really be in an- an American and I'm not really Korean anymore. That that took me aback when I, when I read it because she's lived here for so long that she's, you know, she's forgotten, not forgotten her heritage, but she's passed it on through, through you. But you write that it took you a long time to really uh, understand or fully uh, grasp that part of your heritage. You also, when you write about home, you talk about loving home, appreciating where you grew up, but also conflicted because of that yeah. not being able to embrace your heritage until you moved away. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure.
0: Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, there's a lot there. I think, I think it's kind of weird. I, you know, I always say this, but I think largely identified as like a white guy, right? you know, growing up, I guess a lot of people might've thought of me that way too, but you know, when I was growing, I mean like first time someone called me out, I was like second grade, some kid pulled the corner of his eyes, called me Japanese or something. I remember feeling like this intense amount of shame, About this, you know, and then like getting really angry about it. Third grade, I was getting dropped off, and these kids started doing like these karate moves, you know, as I was getting dropped off. And I remember mom jumped out of the car, told him she'd show him some real karate moves, (laughs) kick these little kids' butts or something, you know. And then, you know, I had an older brother who 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 had to put up with a lot of this stuff too. And you know, Tim took a lot of lumps for me that I didn't have to. So by the time I came through people knew us and and, and they knew our family. So it wasn't, it was not as hard on me really as it was for Tim, but, but I was always waiting for things. I was always waiting for things to go sideways. Like you guys, I played a lot of sports growing up and, you know, when you go travel to some of these towns to play hoops or football or whatever, people say stuff to you. And, But then stuff, my own teammates would say stuff to me. So I kind of grew up on edge, if that makes sense. Like I was real, I just always, I I was real distrustful, I guess, is really the best way to put it. It's the easiest way to put it. And so it's kind of weird that I always, that I mostly thought of myself as a white guy when that was really how I felt as a kid. When I got older with this accent, you go out on the world and you lose like 10 IQ points as soon as you start talking. Right. Because I looked normal. I fit in. Like, I fit in in New York. I fit in in Washington, D.C. I fit in in Boston. But I didn't fit in at home, you know? But then I'd talk in those, you know, big cities, and I didn't fit in there either. Right. I mean, I was dating a girl once who lived in New York, and... She wanted a Bud Light, and I didn't want to order it for her. (laughs) You didn't want to say light. I was going to ask me. I knew the bartender was going to say something. I just knew he was going to say something. You know, my kids. um,
1: My kids make fun of me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but you know, you just you go through life, and you just sort of don't really feel comfortable in your own skin without understanding it. And then as I got I got older, I started thinking about more. Started thinking about how it affected the way I was, like how I had a chip on my shoulder about certain things. And then um, there's a really smart book by a woman named Claudia Rankin called Citizen. It came out after the Trayvon Martin stuff. And she's an African-American poet out of Texas. I think she's out of Texas. She has this great line where this, she's in a CVS and this guy, he just cuts in front of her. I, it's an honest mistake. And I think she reports it as an honest mistake. And he goes, I, I didn't see, I go, I'm sorry, I didn't see you. And so she just keeps repeating that line. I didn't see you. I didn't see you. I didn't see you. And I realized that that was kind of what happened to my mom. It kind of happened to me that people thought that was complimentary to say, I don't see you as Korean. I just see you as you. But like, if you don't see my mom as Korean, that means you don't see her. You don't see that she came from a different place. You don't see what she went through to live in a place like, like Appalachia. I mean, it wasn't like she moved to Los Angeles where there was a Korea town She was right. it. And she had to figure it out. She had to figure it out fast and she had to figure it out fast for the sake of us. And she had no support group. And I think whenever as we sort of go through these things everybody wants to say they're a good person and believes they're a good person but you have to see the totality of someone you don't have to be colorblind you have to actually see those things and understand that there's a different perspective because of that probably you know not always it's not a given but it probably is a given you know
1: and you bring a lot of that into your writing now but i think i've I've heard or read through some of your essays that Mm -hmm. You didn't fully embrace that, or you didn't start writing about that side of your heritage yeah. until in, until into your thirties because you had a fear of of this. I think you refer to it as exoticism, um, yeah, or, or just this idea that sure. if they were paying more attention to that, and they weren't really paying attention to the yeah. prose. Now you have really embraced it, and you really write beautifully about that part of your
0: heritage yeah I was kind of a dumbass about it to be honest I mean some of that's true though I did feel like the I think that does happen I mean I I think that there there were times that I was very uh, when I was really young I was really hell-bent on it and part of that too was like I didn't I didn't want to be exploitive also though like I didn't want to exploit my heritage my mom's heritage is just something to get published, you know, and, you know, that's a, that was a, you know, that was a big uh, assumption on my part that it would just get published because of that. But, but I think, you know, also you come to a point in your life as you're, as a writer, you're, you're always writing about the things that you're curious about. So one of the things that happened was when I look back on all the stuff I was doing before I started embracing, you know, writing about my heritage a little bit more, more explicitly, I was always writing about identity. Right. A lot right. of times it's male identity, you know, where we grew up in that part of the world, I felt like there was a lot of Uh, unwritten rules of manhood I felt like there was a code you sort of absorbed there were things you were there were ways you were supposed to behave or things you were supposed to do it wasn't like anybody really told them to you it was just like this is this is how it is you know and so I was really interested in that and I was interested in people I'd grown up with some coaches I had some older friends that I'd had and my brothers you know guys that had sacrificed a lot you know to take care of their families I was interested in that kind of Working class. My dad had been that way, too. I mean, I didn't grow up that way, but I'd been around a lot of that, you know, and I was really interested in exploring that stuff. And that was always about manhood and identity. And, uh, you know, I mean, I was a weird kid growing up. I mean, I like I love sports. I was a pretty I was a pretty aggressive athlete, but I was also a really sensitive boy.
1: Well, I, I know we met at WKU. I was kind of kind of drawn to you because of where you were from. Like that, you sure. know, I didn't meet a lot of people from Appalachia at Western. I don't I don't know. I think I judged you more because you were from Corbin than anything else. But <laughs> you know, we had this Appalachian bond that people just don't understand. Uh, unless you're from there i don't think
0: yeah i remember when my brother went off to uk he said you know when you grow up where we did you know you grow up hating everybody from london and williamsburg and all those places you compete against and and playing sports and then you get up in a city like that or get away from that area where no one where you just i mean like i said the alien thing like you know like hell man people didn't think corbin was in kentucky when i went to western Like, (laughs) where is that? Is that in kentucky and i'm like yeah and uh so you find somebody that knows like Knows all the people that, you know, they know the things that, you know, or they know the places you've been or the guys you competed against. It just, it just feels comforting. And you don't have feel like you have to, uh, you know, like I always tell that story. Like I went through fraternity rush and everybody'd say, what's your name? And I'd say, I'm Mike. And they would go, Hey Mac. And I'd be like, <laughs> you know, and I just like stopped correcting people at some point. Cause like, what was the point? You know what I mean? Like, right. and I, you know, but I didn't know I had an accent. Right. You know, I went to college. I was right. like, oh. Yeah, I oh, okay. All right, good to know.
1: So. <laughs> I want to ask you about Any Other Place. It's a amazing collection of short stories that I know you worked on for a long time before you published it. I, I don't know, there are 13 stories in Any Other Place. I think my favorite is Slope. I know you mentioned that as being almost autobiographical or mm-hmm. at least as close to auto- being autobiographical close, as, yeah. <laughs> as you can be. <laughs> yeah is is that because it's so personal to you is that one of your favorites in in the in the book
0: yeah i mean i like slope a lot slope kind of opened some things up for me i mean i would have liked to not had my heart broken that way but but that was okay yeah i mean that was kind of an interesting and weird story to write you know like i mean that happened that girl kind of did that to me but then like you know that fight happened too that's when i was living with my brother we were living in richmond virginia and i think i have it i think it happens exactly as it did in the story I, I, I failed some guy he goes you got me with that samurai chop <laughs> we yeah. just we just went at it you know and then you know that but that had happened like years before I met the girl so
1: like yeah. fiction doesn't work unless you make like cause and effect well let me ask you this I, I'm, I was always being curious about this and because I know some of the stories but in Slope <laughs> yeah. writing is it, it, it's a time it's a place it's a moment could you mm. have written Slope today Like you wrote it originally like like could you sit down today and write slope would it would it come out totally different um yeah
0: yeah i mean i think you're always you're always changing just like you guys are changing right like i mean just like you know is neil exactly the same now as when his first kid was born no you know like he'd do things different if he was having a kid right now he'd sleep a lot less and not recover (laughs) as well i mean that'd be one thing just i can tell you from experience but You know, I mean, it's different, you know, and I think like at the time I wrote that, like, you know, people don't understand that about writing, you know, I mean, writing is really about curiosity and trying to explore something that you can't make sense of. So that's why like this whole idea about my identity. Like, I'll never stop writing about that. Now, I don't know if I'll always write about Appalachia. I mean, not because I have anything against it, but like I haven't lived there in 20 years. You know, like, I, I mean, I don't even feel qualified to talk about how Appalachia moves and what it does and how people think—I don't really know. On some level, you know, I have some sense of it because my folks are still there, but I don't know. Talk I'm about not... the
1: next Taco Tico. Yeah,
0: <laughs> man, I would like a Taco Tico, <laughs> but I think like, yeah, it wouldn't be the same now. And I, and there are other things I'm fixated on now, right? Like I'm fixated on middle age now, and I'm fixated on being a parent now. And I'm. Well, I've, heard,
1: on I've heard you say that you need heartache to be a writer <laughs> if, if you don't have that now, can you still? Can you still ride?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, stories got to be about trouble. I mean, that's one thing, and I don't think that you necessarily, you don't need to go out and look for heartache, but you know, it comes to you whether you want it to or not. And I think part of what a lot of writers are doing, they're just trying to make sense of the mystery of everything, you know? Like there's always something mysterious out there that doesn't make sense to you. So you just try to deal with that the best you can. I mean, I usually I do it through fiction. That's always been the thing I've always gone to because I could hide behind it, you know. And I think just lately, just some things are just better as essays. These things about Tim, my brother Tim, who passed away. Like I can't write about that fictionally, you know. I mean, I have to talk about who he was and what he was to me and what he was to our family. And you know, I can't, I can't hide behind that really. I mean, I have an idea for something I might do fictionally, you know, that's sort of based based off of our relationship, but some things you don't want to hide, you know, cause you have to, I don't know. It's kind of like an excavation almost. Like I got to get it out this way. And so you do it
1: that way. I think I read you truly knew you wanted to become a writer when you were 20. So you've been writing for a long time. <laughs> do you feel like you're just getting started though?
0: Uh, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say I'm just getting started. I, I think my best stuff is still ahead of me. You know, I, I mean, I've had, um, I don't know what it is. I don't know the best way to put it. You know, like, I have an essay about this. You know, I, I think people thought I'd be a lot more successful than I was. I, I kind of called myself for one – at one point or another, I don't know if you guys know this term, it's called the 4A ball player. So, a 4A ball player is guy who, like, kills it in AAA, and he goes up to the majors and he can't, you know, he can't play dead in the <laughs> cowboy needs to go movie. go to 4A. To, to... Uh, he's a 4A player. and They send him back down to 3 AAA <laughs> and starts killing it again. They call him back up and he, like, can't play dead in the cowboy movie again. It's just like <laughs> – so it's just like, I, for a long time, I felt like as a 4A player, I just couldn't. I don't know what it was. I, I mean, I have a sense of what it was now. It'd be boring to listen to. So I won the NA in 2016. So you get the call in 2015. And they tell you you got to sit on the news for like a month and a half or something. And I was driving. I was going. I was going to Charlottesville, Virginia, for a reading. And Mary was pregnant with our first. And uh, I get this call, and I'm. It was a weird, like. I don't even know why I answered the number, you know, like I didn't know the number, but I was like, I'm going to answer it. There's it a 202 area code. It says new news DC. It's like, well, maybe this is a call about that, you know? I almost steered off the highway, almost like went over Afton Mountain. I was like, so, but I needed that because it wasn't like I was going to give up riding, but you just kind of felt like, what is, what am I doing here? I hadn't had, I hadn't had the kind of success I had expected or wanted of myself that I kind of demanded of myself, put in a lot of time on it. And the NEA was a big shot in the arm because um, it was anonymous. You just send in your riding sample and no one knows who's who. And then, you know, like was it 1,857 applicants that year or something like that. Wow. Yeah pick 38 most riders don't like to admit this but i knew i was pretty good and then when i got that i knew i was good you know confirmation like no, one would do this. no one would do yeah no one would do this if they didn't think they were good it's too damn hard right i mean you'd be like it's a stupid way to spend your life it's so hard <laughs> it is man it's just like i mean you get told no every day well i know
1: you got thick skin
0: i guess i think i'm just too stupid to do <laughs> something else you know what i mean? <laughs> I'm too damn stubborn to try anything else.
1: So tell our listeners and tell, you know, I, I'm. Will talks to you obviously a lot more than I do, but, but I, I was just going to ask, you know, in a rider's world that's totally different, probably from what my typical day looks like or or someone else's typical day looks like. So what's a what's a typical day look like for you during during the the school year? I guess when you've got <laughs> responsibility at classes as well. I mean, how do you find the time? He's asking you what time do you go what what's your first tea time of the day
0: exactly. exactly. It would seem a lot lazier. It will seem lazier than it is, but it's hard to explain. I think one of the hard hard things about riding is that it seems like you're it does kind of seem like you're screwing around a lot. One of my mentors, Lee Smith, says you need a lot of staring out the window time. Daydreaming is a big part of it actually. Sure. So, a lot of riders I know because riding is so hard and teaching is so hard and so demanding, a lot of riders I know, they don't they just stop riding during the school year. They just save it all for summer. I've never been able to do that. I'm not really sure why. I think part of it's because I'm really selfish and I'm pretty protective of my time. Like if I'm not riding, I'm real cranky. Uh, So tomorrow, well, we have fall break tomorrow and Tuesday. So I'll go into the office. I'll start riding at nine. I'll work till 12, 1230. Lunch, maybe work out. Probably not. Probably too busy to do that. And then I'll start doing my student stuff grading or preparing for class. And then I'm there until four, 435 meeting students. Where I am now, I do this thing at Denison. We have this project that seniors do. They write a book-length work of fiction all year. You know, in the spring, I'll read just between six kids in the spring, I'll read 5,000 pages of student work, not to mention the other classes I'm teaching and what those people turn in. Like whenever you get those stories or essays, that's when you wish you taught math.
1: (laughs) So you're reading all these college students' essays, like getting all the, getting all these ideas, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> no. guess, let me ask you this. Where we grew up, this may come out wrong, but it, it was hard <laughs> to be cr- a creative where we grew up when you were a young kid. You know what I mean? Um, just, I think, yeah. What advice would you give that Appalachian kid right now, maybe two, three sentences worth of advice, that, that kid that's carrying the book to football but hides it in his book bag because he doesn't want the other players to see it. What advice would you give that <laughs> – dreamer or that creative that wants to be a writer coming out of Appalachia
0: um I would just tell him to do it I mean what you don't really have anything to lose look I mean I, I, I was a weird guy I mean now part of that's because my brother was six years older than me and he was my hero and we were weird because we had a mom who wasn't from that area like I'll give you an example once like Silas House buddy of mine so Silas and I met before he sold his first novel and I was 22 graduated from Western he goes man he goes he goes, most mothers around here want you married, married off with kids right now. I was like, well, <laughs> my mom's not from around here, man. You know, right. and that made a big difference on us. And yeah. I think that that's really important. You know, we she didn't wanted have, you to move away, right? Huh? She wanted you to move away, right? They both did. My dad did too, actually. And I think that was a big thing. I think another big thing for us was, you know, my dad wrote Tim and I a letter once when we were going on a golf trip and he just wanted to give us a little spending money. You know, we didn't need it, but he wanted to do it. And you know, he's not a real he's not a real open guy, but he wrote this letter to us. And he said, he goes, you know, I don't know what it was. He goes, but when I was 18, he goes, I hitchhiked out of here and I never left. He goes, I think you both know what I mean. And he grew up, you know, over Frakes Mountain, you know, near Pineville there. And he had hitchhiked out of there and went to college. And, you know, even though he just moved to Corbin, but, you know, like from Frakes to Corbin, for my dad, <laughs> that's like California for us, you know, like, I mean, psychically, it was half halfway across the world, you know what I mean? Physically, it wasn't very far. And we didn't have like the kind of same kind of um, like I know you guys. So we didn't have the same kind of family get togethers and stuff growing up. Like We didn't it just wasn't how my dad's family was. And the other half of my family lived in Korea. So we only had us like there were just the four of us as a unit. And my wife and I were talking about this the other day, which is just that, you know, I didn't have to. You know, that I wasn't like a lot of those kids that, you know, were afraid to hide who they were. Like, I got all the affirmation I needed at home. Those are the only people I had to prove anything to. I didn't, I didn't care about the other guys. I'm not saying I didn't have peer pressure and things like that, but at the end of the day, like, if Tim was good with me, that's all I really cared about.
1: When we grew up, You know, there wasn't the Internet, but there also there weren't a lot of or at least maybe because there wasn't Internet, but there weren't a lot of Silas Houses. There weren't a lot of Mike Crowley's. There weren't a lot (laughs) of Carter Sickles, Allison Glocks. There weren't a lot of these authors that you hear about, these Appalachian authors that are in the mainstream today. We didn't have that to look up to. Well, we're thankful for I think some of them were out there. but
0: You know, our teachers weren't teaching them. And that that (laughs) has a lot
1: to do with it, too. I mean, just understand you can do it. Yeah. (laughs) And my, my point was just that. You know, kids growing up in Appalachia today, they can be micro, they can be solace houses and they can still sure. stay in Appalachia. You know what I yeah, mean?
0: That's right. I think that's the other thing. I don't think you have to move away. or don't feel like you have to move away. Sometimes it's
1: really hard for people in Appalachia to, to take that leap of faith like like yourself and just just go. You know, right. you talked about to your point earlier about. Uh, you didn't learn about all these Appalachian riders when you were in school because nobody was teaching it. We've talked about that numerous times, all the Appalachian <laughs> history that occurs that kids don't know because guess what? They're not learning about it. Right. So we're, we've really tried to make a push to, to make that point several times. And I'm glad you brought it up. But um,
0: Well, I mean, just I think some of that, you know, I think people just think like, well, you just know because you're here. Right. right. You know, but that's. But you don't know. That's a terrible assumption to make.
1: Yeah. Hey, Crowley, you've probably been asked this a thousand times. Let me fire out a couple quick questions. Sure. Um, what's your favorite Appalachian Who's your favorite Appalachian author?
0: Well, it's got to be Lee, just because she's so good to me. Yeah. Lee Lee Smith's great. If you haven't read Fair and Tender Ladies, is a great novel. That's the one to read, just because it's a basically a whole history of Appalachian in the 20th
1: century, told in letters. It's great. Perfect. What's your favorite Appalachian book? <laughs> you may have just probably, answered
0: it. Probably *Fair and Tender Ladies*. Yeah.
1: Uh, and I know you actually po- steered me. I, I I've asked your opinion on books once. I think while we were at Western, and you yeah. steered me straight to *Rabbit Run*. John Updike. Yeah. Um, see, your favorite author in in general is that your favorite book ever. Uh,
0: N- well, no. I mean, I've kind of, uh, well, Updike's one of those guys people kind of really soured on in recent years. I, I don't know that I should sour on him. You know, he was pretty instrumental. He taught me what literature was. It was. a great scene in Rabbit Run. He takes off and leaves his family. And he's um, going through West Virginia, and he says the telephone wires were lassoing against the sky. And I remember when I was a kid, we'd go out to the country where my dad had grown up, and I'd, I would be laying in the backseat of his car, <clears throat> and I would see the wires do that. And I thought the same thing. So I was 16 when I read that line in Rabbit Run. I just, I instinctively knew that that's what literature was. And I instinctively knew that that's what was so powerful. But I was like, here was this guy who was completely different from me. And we saw something the same way. And I knew that that's what what really good fiction did. You know, like it connected us. So that was like a really important book for me. But no, I mean, now I probably, my favorite book now is All the King's Men. I just think that's a really, I still think that's a really prescient book, especially. And I, you know, I'm kind of a little bit of a political junkie, not as much as I used to be, but I think that that's a really prescient book about politics and ambition and all
1: that. You may have just answered this next question, but if you were Bill Murray in Groundhog's Day, (laughs) <laughs> and you woke up every day on this loop and you could only read one book. Would that be the book or would it be something different?
0: Oh, I don't know. That's a good question, actually. I don't know really it'd be that one. It might be something that really turned me on. To, it might be some of those early Raymond Carver collections that I bought when you and I were living together at Western, you know. <laughs> I mean, those really kind of set me on fire. I just couldn't believe, you know, I mean, he, he, you know, he'd been dead probably 14 years by the time I discovered him, you know, but he was new to me and I'd never read anything like that. I didn't know you could even do that in fiction, you know? And like, there's nothing really sort right. of, I don't want to say there's, there's not a lot of pyrotechnics, so to speak, in his work. It's really spare prose, but I just yeah. didn't know you could do stuff like that. So it'd probably be something like that. Something really turned me on to it.
1: We haven't even gotten to your sports writing. I feel like you're as as passionate about that as as anything else you do. You do that quite often now.
0: I do like doing it a lot. I'd like to do I'd like to do more of it. I mean, it's kind of weird. Like I tell my students this, but I really learned how to write reading Sports Illustrated. I read Sports Illustrated cover to cover, and it's kind of weird. I didn't go into sports writing. I think sometimes to start, but I got bit by the fiction bug early and wanted to do it. And I kind of like what I'm doing now, but yeah, I like, I like doing it. I mean, it, it's fun. You know, our, my wife came home to be with the kids and so it's kind of a I, I wouldn't go so far as to say like it's a second income source for us, but it helps. I'd like doing it. I only, I only pitch stuff I like doing. Right. So it's kind of fun to do. And it's not as hard to me as like fiction writing, which yeah. is not to denigrate journalism at all, but like, it's just a different muscle. And so it's kind of fun. And I meet lots of cool people doing it. Honestly, like I talked to a yeah, that was fun. Kornheiser was fun, and he's he's been really nice to me and good to me. I mean, I met Will bond on that trip. And then, like, the other thing about it is, too, is, like, you have to make an impression on these people that they realize, like, you're not – I don't know if everyone – I don't know, like, if working journalists, like guys that are on the beat every day have to feel this pressure. But when I do it, I feel a pressure to prove to them that I'm different than other people that are going to talk to. Yeah, I can see that.
1: We haven't talked any about – Midland about your book, Midland, the stories of flower of a country. I, I, we'd like to have you back on
0: you because
1: you understand. are you, you're self-proclaimed, as you said earlier, political junkie just to talk about Midland or Midland part two. If you're going to come out with another one, you and your co-author or your co-editor. Yeah, book. I, I think that just be it's an interesting read.
0: Yeah, we were just trying to do something there, trying to highlight some work in the middle of the country. You know, I think one of the things that really bothered us was that when Trump was elected, you know, the national media were like, what happened? And it was like, dude, if you just drive the cornfields of Ohio, you wouldn't have been as shocked. A lot of it was just about the ways in which, you know, coastal media outlets, you know, you need the coastal media outlets. Like, they have the most money. They have the most power and influence. Rightly or wrongly, that's just how it is. But, you know, they could do things better. We started these series of conferences at Denison to get these people together, to get them in a room and to connect them to people that were working at those media outlets, too. We just felt like there were a lot of stories in the middle of the country, in that flyover country and in rural America, Appalachia included, where, you know, it's more complex than you think it is. And it should be reported as being complex. And, you know, you're never going to get away from what's called parachute journalism. There's a function in place for that. It could be done better. Like, here's an example if we just want to use one close to home. Like any... You know, any jerk can fly into fly into Lexington, and rent a car, and come down for the chicken festival and interview six people in front of the world's largest frying pan, and they're not going to come off as like the most complex and interesting people. You know, you you're going to find you want to go there and find that person. You can find that person. It takes time to like go somewhere else and try to find somebody who has nuanced views on things. And, you know, and a lot of times what is frustrating to certain journalists is that there are there are people that live in those regions that are smart and are nuanced and have complex feelings about these things. And those aren't the people that either a get the assignment, right? they don't get the assignment from the magazine or the newspaper, or they're not the ones that are interviewed, you know, and there's just a way that like, you know, I think one of the things at Midland, that we were trying to also highlight is like, look, like the absence of local news, it's really critical that we figure that out in order to ensure the fabric of democracy. Like we mentioned Phil earlier, I'm not picking on him now, you know, but like you need newspaper reporters at the school board meeting. Right. Like you need people there to say, this is what happened. This is what Bundy said. This is what Warren said. You need people to report that out. You're not going to get that off of Facebook and you know, like it's, you gotta, you gotta have someone who's a referee. The more you see n- local news disappear, the less you have of that. It's important.
1: Yeah, I, I do want to say, any other place, if you want to hear true Appalachian, a unique perspective from Appalachia. There's a lot of grief, a lot of exile, a lot of yeah. love, a lot of love loss. <laughs> lot of despair but there's a lot of redemption in that in that collection as well great book for anybody out there that like a pick up a copy where where can they find it sold crowley we greatly appreciate your time appreciate you being on the show appreciate what you're doing for the region about the region and hope you continue to give your perspective about the region thanks guys (laughs) appreciate it man crowley throwing out some good stuff tonight been a while since uh, we had a chance to talk to him but i'm glad that he uh like we told him glad he joined us tonight you know always good catching up with old pals even though you know you guys were much closer than i was you know, i kind of learned from afar and You know, I got to beat you guys in basketball a little bit here and there. (laughs) I think probably would disagree with that statement. Yeah, always good to hear from a friend, but also it was it was really good to hear his perspective on writing. We we say this a lot, but to hear it from the horse's mouth from a true author, a true writer of prose, a true creative. I didn't get a chance to true creative. And he definitely has a unique perspective on Appalachia. It was good it was good to hear that. We we talk about the diversity in Appalachia all the time, and it's good to hear his unique perspective. He he even writes about I don't think we mentioned this in the episode writes about be feeling homeless. And he mentioned that he did mention in the episode about yeah. you know, being torn, not fitting in back home and then going outside and people hearing his accent and not fitting in there. And, you know, he writes in one of his essays and uses the word homeless. And, and, you know, I know, even though he uses, uses that word, I know the affinity he has for back home. I know the affinity he has for Appalachian, the people, and you can see it in his writing yeah it's who raised him where he's from like you said i think shaped and molded him. yeah 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 for sure and like you said he's got a unique perspective being not only from appalachia but uh asian american from appalachia pretty unique perspective on life and on the region and on what it's like within it and what it's like outside of it so yeah i appreciate his words yeah and also I kind of took note to when he was talking about venturing out into the world and not finding success early on. you know, I think we all define the success differently, and I think one of the reasons why we want to start this podcast was was to dispel some of the misconceptions and while some people try to to get away from Appalachia, I think there's nothing wrong with going out and seeing the world, but a lot of times that will bring you back to Appalachia and make you realize what, what you had, what you have in Appalachia. And even uh, the name of Crowley's book, Any Other Place, I think it's a line in one of his, one of his short stories. I think it's in Slope where the main character, Ren Asher, talks about his town, which is based on the town of Corbin, but in the book he calls it Fordyce. The main character talks about it being just any other place, like any other town. And while that's true for the story, that's true for fiction, I don't think Appalachia is like any other place. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think it's different. I think the people are different. I think Appalachians have that sense of community. Togetherness. We all understand Appalachia a little bit better than outsiders, obviously, but I think that we definitely aren't any other place. And I think anyone from there can appreciate that. And- yeah, for sure. You know, I've seen places all over the world and on the other side of the world. And I always come away from those visits longing for more of Appalachia. My, that's my perspective. That's not the same as everybody's, but <clears throat> to me, Appalachia is the greatest place on earth. You know, it's all about perspective. Absolutely. And I'm glad, again, we heard from Crowley's perspective. So moving on to Of Place tonight, I was going to once again throw that question at you. Do you got anything uh, for us in regards to Of Place? Yeah. Just for this episode, I'd like to touch on a little personal matter. Crowley, he mentioned his brother several times, Tim. He passed away not too long ago. It wasn't a question, you know, it wasn't something that We needed to talk about an episode and definitely wasn't something I wanted to push uh, during during the episode. But I just want to talk about an article that Mike put out around the first of October. It was in Esquire. It was called One Last Round with My Brother Tim." You get a chance, you get an opportunity. You can check that article out. It's set as a tribute to his brother, but really it's a article about the bond that he had with, I'm going to call him T because that's what we always called him. The bond that he had with T, even though T was 10 years older than Mike, he shared this special bond that not a lot of brothers do, especially not a lot of brothers 10 years apart. And he talks about it in this essay and it's, it's really touching and really powerful essay about two brothers just sharing a bond of togetherness from where they grew up but also just over throughout the years of T being a caretaker more of almost a father figure for Mike as he was growing up and kind of showing him the way helping him through some hard times helping him through some good times just being there for him all the time that's who T was he was he was smart he was a fiery guy. I think he, he might have gotten that from his mom, but <laughs> he was a, a, extremely intelligent, very analytical, but he's modest and humble, and and uh, I know he was a proud Kentuckian, and I just want <clears throat> to touch on that a little bit, talk about T a little bit. I, I can't imagine losing you, Neil, and I, I know it's hard for Kroll, obviously, but uh, this essay, when I read it, it was really touching and um, just – allowed the reader to see that bond that he had with his brother. You know, it talks about him taking an annual trip to Pinehurst that he always took with T and this year he took it obviously without T. I just wanted to say that and say how great of a person T was, how uh, touching a tribute this article was. And if you get a chance, go check it out. It's in Esquire, September 30th, 2021. Yeah, it's uh... You know, like you said, I, I don't want to have to imagine that, but he, he's been through it now, and I never got a chance to to know T, but I've heard you and others talk about what a great guy he was, and appreciative of of his time that he was here, and and contribute to his little brother like you have me. Yeah, he, he has a line in the article. It talks about Mike thinking that every all brothers shared that same bond, but he quickly found out that, that, that they were the exception and not the rule. Yeah. I guess we'll wrap it up and I'll end it like I always do. Till next time. Peace. I'm up
0: in the mountains again I'm getting lighter The air's getting thin Now I'm facing down with a grim I've been in the city too long Sidewalks and buildings and singing sad songs. Now I'm back up where I belong in the mountains.